Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello all, I'm Vicki Vasilega, Director of the Clinical Special Scientist section here at ASHP, and I want to welcome you to today's episode. I'm particularly excited about this session as as a preview for one of our board certification offerings from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your clinical colleagues as they share the latest in clinical developments. So, sadly, uh, there's not a wealth of information or studies to this end. The most recent actually is decades old. And you can see here there was a a survey, a two-part survey sent to 2,500 pharmacists. The survey included 10 multiple choice questions about the most common statistical tests. So things that you've probably heard of, like a T-test, chi-squared, things of that nature, as well as common terms and concepts such as p-values, power, hypotheses, etc. From this survey, they received a little bit over 700 responses, which, you know, 28.3% response rate doesn't seem awesome. However, when they had done their a priori power calculations, they calculated they needed 750 responses or a 30% response rate to have adequate power for comparison. So they weren't uh, so far from what their initial target was. However, from the results they got, the average score on this multiple choice survey was 2.8 correct answers out of 10 with a standard deviation of two. And respondents were asked to not guess, but they were provided an opportunity to say, I don't know. And of all of the questions answered, so, you know, over 7,000 individual questions answered, 57.5% of those questions were answered with an I don't know. Additionally, even despite being asked not to guess, 31.6% of responses were actually incorrect. So not looking that good here based on that. Looking a little bit beyond pharmacy and just into the biomedical literature on a larger scale, an analysis of 791 articles between five different major biomedical journals uh, found the following. 51% of those articles mistakenly interpreted non-significance as no effect. There was no effect because the the finding was non-significant. And so it starts to get us thinking about, well, maybe we're not all on the same page, or perhaps there's an opportunity here for continued uh, education on this topic. P-values have become incredibly ubiquitous in our our work, um, in our evidence, and so being able to interpret those properly is imperative. So what we're hoping to do today, in addition to our objectives, is sort of help encourage increasingly statistical thinking and growth growth from where we are here. So I'm going to try to sell you on this a little bit with a couple of examples. Consider the following. So this is some data from a, a study evaluating possible food poisoning. And you can see in our little contingency table here, the exposures. So the little plate dinner plate there indicating the individuals that ate at the restaurant of question or had the meal or food of question and those that didn't, the exposure, versus those who had the outcome. So who got food poisoning versus those who did not. Do our contingency table, our statistics, uh, this actually utilized a Fisher's exact test. And we're going to look at why this illustrates why the p-value threshold, this this 0.05, this significance versus non-significant, 
is not always maybe the best concept of win versus lose. So let's look at this. We have 87 individuals here. Here were the results of this Fisher's exact test of this data. Relative risk of 2.5 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.99 to 6.5, so pretty wide, and a p-value of 0.062. Okay, you're thinking non-significant, nothing to see here, carry about, the chicken must have been fine, or whatever. But let's add two more people to our, our data set here, our sample. So now we have an N of 89 individuals, and despite such a small increase, look at what this does mathematically to our statistics. So here now, the relative risk, 2.7, pretty similar, actually, but the 95% confidence interval, 1.1 to 7.0, similar in size as well as upper and lower ends, though here it does not cross one. And relatedly, our p-value is 0.037, so less than our, our traditional 0.05, and therefore generally concluded as statistically significant. So we added two more people, and now, ooh, this is, this is meaningful, this is significant. Um, so that seems a little strange um, or hard to reconcile. Uh, the relative risks are similar. The studies suggest a similar level of strength of association, yet have dramatically different p-value reporting. So this really starts to bring in that question, that appropriateness of the design, the quality of the data, other issues that may impact how we look at this data and interpret these findings. So just kind of getting your mind going a little bit. Let's do one more because any chance I get to talk about this, I, I just have to take it. Significant chocolate. So in 2012, the New England Journal of Medicine published this trial correlating Nobel Prize winners and chocolate consumption. So what countries with the most significant chocolate consumption and then their correlating number of Nobel laureates. And you can see visually, but uh, also numerically, that this was a very close, significant linear correlation with an R value of 0.791 with a P value of less than 0.0001. I love this example because it's it's one of my favorite to illustrate correlation does not equal causation but additionally look at this p-value and you're thinking like yes all of the chocolate I should do this and again it's a little bit more of an issue of correlation and causation but uh, we can think about our p-values and sort of how does that play out in the larger scheme and clinical interpretation of our data in case you're interested which I know you are because it only makes sense. The regression for this study showed that 0.4 kilograms of chocolate per capita per year was needed to increase the country's Nobel Prize winners by one. And they also calculate how much, you know, the minimum num uh, amount of kilos of chocolate necessary to see that. So kind of interesting. The authors conclude that this is hypothesis generating because correlation doesn't equal causation. We need prospective randomized trials, which I would like to be a part of. So just some examples of, of p-values and data and how, you know, numbers can be wonderful and have a, a role. But we also want to expand our thinking to a more holistic view of statistics. Let's take a little bit of... Uh, 
a quick history lesson. And to be fair, concepts related to probability and testing dates back centuries beyond this. But I just kind of fast forward us to the 1900s just to kind of give you an idea of where this has come from and how long we've been talking about these issues. So in the early 1900s, Carl Pearson described uh, chi-square testing, um, using it for dice and uh, roulette tables at Monte Carlo. So uh, I think that's a very sexy example. But anyway, it, it goes back as far as that. And this little pea plant leaf is there because this was also some of the start of controversy between traditional experimentalist Mendelian geneticists and sort of the advent in the early 1900s of statistics as a formal discipline and biostatisticians that were moving away from some of that experimental, you know, physical role and more into that mathematical conceptual role. And how those two both had some controversial butting of heads, but also moving forward in some ways together. As we uh, move into the first couple decades of the 1900s, Fisher, Ronald Fisher, publishes the Statistical Methods for Research Workers. And this is really credited or lauded as having helped develop the formal approach to significance testing. It uses, you know, probability or p-values. And so this was some of the first thing we hear. It was very landmark. Fast forward one more year, and um, Fisher is is on record endorsing this 0.05 threshold when we think about probability or p-value testing. And I want to read you verbatim or quote from from what he was uh, said. And here it is: It is convenient to draw the line at about the level at which we can say either there is something in the treatment or a coincidence has occurred such as does not occur more than once in 20 trials. So that one in 20 became sort of this threshold. And as things continue, Naaman and Pearson are, are more credited with, with identifying hypothesis testing. So having a null and an alternative hypothesis. Um, so, so they sort of got into this mix with Fisher and uh, this testing methodology. And as the decades go on, uh, Fisher is then cited later in 1956 is that there's no specific fixed level of significance. So we've kind of, you know, come up and down in, in different ways that this has been discussed and quotations and historical texts and, this, and the like. In 1956, he says, and I love this, and I think um, really is the crux of what we're talking about today, Quote, no scientific worker has a fixed level of significance at which from year to year and in all circumstances, he rejects hypotheses. He rather gives his mind to each particular case in light of his evidence and his ideas. So just chew on that for a minute. So 1900s and through the 1950s. And then as we move forward closer to now, what's happening? P-values are everywhere. We're prioritizing largely, or it has been said that the 0.05 threshold has been prioritized as a way in which to dichotomize results as positive, negative, worthy or unworthy, uh, significant or non-significant. There was a study assessing p-value reporting in Medline abstracts. They ultimately looked at one point, over 1.6 million abstracts uh, within the biomedical literature over the past several decades. Within that, the number of abstracts reporting even one p-value increased at a rate of 8.2% per year. There was also, not surprisingly, a strong clustering of those p-values at specific values, namely 0.05. 
reporting of more statistically significant results on average were also seen over this period of time. So we have this increased prevalence of p-values. And we've had this history of kind of the threshold matters, it doesn't matter, different people kind of weighing in on how best to test. So where do we find ourselves? Well, concerns have been brought forward. So statistically, mainly within, within the statistical societies and community, they ask and write about what are the issues with re- reproducibility and rep- replicability. That's a difficult word to say. Uh, and, and you may have heard it or seen it denoted as the replication crisis. We worry about misuse and misinterpretation of p-values. Are we oversimplifying the interpretation and thereby labeling a trial as positive, negative, publish this, don't publish this, you know, submit this manuscript, not this manuscript, or report this result, don't report this result. And then finally, it's important to note that the absence of evidence does not equal and does not mean there's an evidence of absence. So there are a lot of big potential issues with p-value reporting and the way that uh, we teach it, we learn it, we use it, and we propagate it. So let's talk more about our p-value. I know you want to. Taking a moment to reflect on what we even think this means. Which of the following most accurately describes a p-value? A, the probability that the null hypothesis is true. B, the probability that the null hypothesis is false. C, the probability that the true answer is within the confidence interval. Or D, the probability of the observed result or a more extreme result, given that the null hypothesis is true. I'm going to give you a minute to read all those words. There's a lot to unpack here, and there's some some funny sort of popular media things about scientists being asked to define a p-value and being grossly unable. So if if that's how you feel, you're not alone. Uh, this is sort of a foundational concept, but one that's very often mis- misinterpreted. So what is the right answer? D, the probability of the observed result or a more extreme result, given that the null hypothesis is true. So what does this even mean? This just means that the p-value is not the likelihood of the null hypothesis, given your data. It's, in fact, the likelihood of your data, given the null hypothesis. And we'll look at an example here in a minute. So here it is in some other words. So what is the p-value? The probability of the observed result, data, effect, or more extreme results, if the null hypothesis is true. Think about the probability that the sample mean difference between two groups would be equal or more extreme than the observed value. What is, what is the probability of that occurring? And then if you're a math nut, here's some algebraic expression of the p-value. And I probably should have given with my financial disclosures a disclaimer that I am by no means a biostatistician, but I am someone that uses evidence-based medicine and reads literature and and feels uh, necessary based on certifications and my job and um, everything that this is a, a critical a critical skill and understanding. All right, so there's our p-value. We're going to circle back now to some of our self-assessment questions, um, and you can kind of reflect on maybe what you thought and if that's the same or different now, and we'll go over the right answers. So let's go on to do that. If you remember this, the p-value, if p equals 0.05, the null hypothesis only has a 5% chance of being true. True or false? It's a lot of trues there, sorry. 
And so think about what you put before. Maybe you feel the same or perhaps you're, I've totally changed your mind or opened your eyes. Maybe not. This statement is in fact false. So data alone cannot conclusively tell us uh, that conclusions are right or, or wrong. P-values are calculated under the assumption that the null hypothesis is true. So, I mean, just logically, it cannot represent the likelihood of it also being false if it's all assumed that it's true in order that it's calculated. So this statement is false. Our next one, P greater than 0 0.05 means the treatment and placebo are equivalent. This is also false. Hope maybe uh, the word equivalent was sort of a, a flag here for some. Um, a non-significant difference solely indicates that the null is consistent with the observed results, as well as the range of, of results um, reported in the confidence interval. This doesn't necessarily translate that the null or no difference is, is the most likely hypothesis. So often when we're thinking about clinical issues, they're, they're different studies. And it'll say, we'll be reading a meta-analysis or we have a review and it'll say, well, this study said it was significant. And this, you know, trial said otherwise. And this one was inconclusive or, um, you know, so we're like, I don't know what to make of all this, or I need a meta-analysis. I need a Cochrane review or something of that nature. But I want to illustrate this uh, visually because it really cleared things up for me when I'm thinking about these numbers and effects and everything. So you can see here, different p-values right? One traditionally significant and one 0.078 non-significant. And the confidence intervals, very different, one being far wider than the other. And same observed effect or point estimate, that 20%. But if you were to like just read this text, you might be like, well, one says it's it matters and the other doesn't. You know, this is significant, this is non-significant. But in fact, these are not contra contradicting one another. There's no conflict here. Um, this is really probably more a matter of um, sample size, uh, precision of your instrument or measurement, things of that nature. And I, I really like this statement. Any effect, no matter how tiny, can produce a small p-value if the sample size or measurement precision is high enough. And, and on the converse, large effects may not create or merit or show or produce a significant p-value if the sample size is small or the measurements are imprecise. But that doesn't necessarily mean that things are contradicting one another. So relatedly, let's do one more question here. When a study is small and or has a low power, but p equals 0 0.001, which of the following is most likely? Overestimation of effect size, underestimation of effect size, overestimation of sample size, or underestimation of sample size? Here the answer is A, an overestimation of effect size. So the study's small or has low power, but we have this, this significant result. Well, it's likely due to a large effect size being realized or overestimated um, that allowed us to glean that result versus you know it being more predictably non-significant. Wow. Okay. So this is a lot. Let's talk about why has this all of a sudden maybe come to a head? Well, there's been some recent flow of recommendations and it started um, most notably in 2016 with the American Statistical Association uh, releasing recommendations on p-value reporting. And we're going to, we're going to look at that shortly. 
following that was was sort of a follow-up statement, but three years later about, well, we have all these things about p-values, but what should we actually do? What do we do beyond 0.05? And then most recently, and really, I think as it starts to move into this biomedical field in a way, maybe from purely statistical uh, disciplines, uh, New England Journal of Medicine updated their statistical guidelines. And we'll, we'll talk briefly about that. But I, you know, I think for all of us that practice pharmacy or in medicine, have some familiarity with this. So our American Statistical Association, I want to say society, but that would just be a terrible acronym for them. So that was probably wise on there. And uh, their statement on p-values, context, process, purpose, the intended audience of this, these recommendations were researchers, practitioners, and science writers who are not primarily statisticians. Ding, that's me. Is that you? I hope so, because these are meant for you. And I guess good news and bad news is that they, they note Nothing in this statement is new. Statisticians and others have been sounding the alarm on these matters for decades to no avail. Okay, super. <laughs> Glad we're finally getting the memo. There are six kind of key principles that we're going to talk about. But first, I love this conversation. And I think this resonates with me. It, it may feel similar to you. A conversation held and, and then published from this forum of the American Statistical Association was, so, so why do so many colleges and grad schools teach P equals 0.05? Because that's still what the scientific community and journal editors use. Okay. Why do they still use 0.05? It's because what they were taught in school, right? So it's this circular logic. Um, and so can, can we break this pattern? I don't know. Maybe together we can. Let's look at our principles. Number one, p-values can indicate how incompatible the data are with a specified statistical model. So we construct this using our null hypothesis. And the smaller the p-value, the greater the statistical incompatibility of the data with the null hypothesis. Assuming that uh, the assumptions used to calculate the p-value hold, hold true. Okay, so incompatibility, small p-value, indicates evidence against the null hypothesis. Smaller p-value, greater statistical incompatibility of the data with the null hypothesis. It's kind of, it's, you know, words. As we move into principle two. P-values do not measure the probability that the studied hypothesis is true or the probability that the data were produced by random chance alone. It is about data and data specifically related to a spe uh, specified hypothetical explanation. It's not a statement about the explanation itself. They don't tell us that the studied hypothesis is true. They tell us about the data, the data, the data, the data, and they talk about incompatibility with the, uh, with the explanation not um, whether or not it's true. So circling back one more time to some of our self-evaluation questions, the smaller the p-value, the stronger the hypothesis being tested. True or false? This is false. The p-value solely represents the probability of such a result or more extreme, given that the null hypothesis is true. Again, that just takes us back to our definition of a p-value. Principle three, and I think everyone probably feels that this is, is one of the most intuitive. Scientific conclusions and business or policy decisions should not be based on whether a p-value passes a specific threshold. 
So we shouldn't be saying this matters, this doesn't. Do this, don't do that. This is valid, this is invalid. True versus false conclusions. Confusions is right. Am I right? Uh, Use multiple factors in the decision making. So that's design, the quality of the measurements. What is your tool like? What is the precision? External evidence. What's the assumptions about the data you're making? Is the statistical modeling correct? All of these factors play in. And Elise is going to talk a lot about this as we move forward in this presentation. Four, proper inference requires full reporting and transparency. So, you know, don't be cherry picking. That's my little cherries there. We don't report findings selectively. Five is a p-value or statistical significance does not measure the size of an effect or the importance of a result. So the smaller the value doesn't mean it's better or more significant, right? It just tells us how compatible or incompatible it is. And it's all about the data, not the hypothesis. Any effect, no matter how tiny, can produce a small p-value if the sample size or measurement precision is high enough. And the converse is true, right, as well. If we have a Um, small sample size or the measurement is imprecise, then we may have unimpressive p-values. Unimpressive is probably uh, not the right word there. All right, and then our sixth and final principle. By itself, a p-value does not provide a good measure of evidence regarding a model hypothesis. Consider other hypotheses. Don't stop at p. So like, let the party roll. What other data is there? We need to look at our effect size, our confidence interval, all those other pieces, the design you know, and, and giving more context scientifically, clinically uh, to, to this p-value, right? It alone does not comment completely. It does not stand alone or should not stand alone. All right. And then our final circle back to our self-evaluation questions. Which of the following indicates, and I'll put it in quotations this time, statistically significant results? Give you a minute to read through our answers. Refresh. All right, does anyone feel uncomfortable picking one? Because you're like, I don't know. The difference between 0.051 and 0.049 isn't even statistically significant. Um, You know, tell me more about the design. What's going on? So traditionally speaking or historically speaking, C, P equals 0.049 would be statistically significant because of this arbitrary 0.05. But hopefully as we're moving forward, we're going to be a little bit more thoughtful about this, this dichotomous conclusion. So we had the initial recommendations in 2016. Fast forward to 2019, they're like, okay, okay, I get it. Now what? Here are some do's and don'ts. And um, Elise is going to talk to us a lot about these um, and apply them to some cases for us. Uh, but in brief, we want to accept uncertainty, be thoughtful, be open, and be modest. Feels like wise things to do in your life as well as in your statistical methodologies. Uh, don'ts. Don't base conclusions solely on significance indicated by passing the specific golden you know, threshold of 0.05. Don't believe an effect is absent just because the result was non-significant. And you're going to love this, guys. Don't say statistically significant or any of its variants. Don't be saying it's non-significant or it's significantly different. We're not so <laughs> it's not recommended to use those words. I know that makes us all a little uncomfortable. So maybe just start marinating on that a bit. And then as I mentioned before, all of this happened kind of in our statistical communities and has started to make its way into the biomedical fields. And so this is from the guidelines or updated statistical reporting from New England Journal of Medicine. They say the following, don't eliminate the p-value. And it's not as though American Statistical Association, 
I keep saying society, uh, has recommended completely banning the p-value. It's more of it, it doesn't stand alone and it shouldn't be used as this black and white marker. They further go on to talk about the multiplicity adjustment. So when there's no plan for an adjustment as such, we need to replace p-values with estimates of effect or association and confidence intervals. Per usual, adhere to the pre-specified plan for analysis, uh, use thresholds for significance only, uh, should they should be limited and minimize type one error. And then the risk and benefit data should include point estimates and margins of error to help not allow those p-values to stand alone. And then I want to read you this quote from this editorial discussing the new guidelines. The notion that a treatment is effective for a particular outcome if P is less than 0.05 and ineffective if that threshold is not reached is a reductionist view of medicine that does not always reflect reality. So we've had the American Statistical Association with their initial guidelines, their uh, follow-up with recommendations, and it was really a, a compilation of essays and viewpoints and, and um, different ways to approach p-values in the world beyond p-values. And, and then we have New England Journal and other journals kind of hopping on board with this movement away or with a little bit more thought accompanying our p-value reporting. But is there still debate? And th there definitely is. And uh, you can find a lot of editorial or review kind of on all ends of the spectrum here from didn't get the memo. And this might this might be you. And that's that's OK. There's a lot of folks that are still in this boat. Didn't even know this was happening. We'll kind of have to cogitate on this a little bit. Totally fair. Uh, proponents, abandon non-significance or significance, you know, move forward with Bayes factors and different alternative methodologies and, and stay away from this because it's messy and people don't do it properly. And then there's this, there's everything in between. And then there's this, this opposition, getting rid of these thresholds, these p-values, this probability testing is this free pass to manipulate data. And we're just going to um, kind of let down or open the floodgates for for lots of things to start entering into publication or, you know, dissemination that maybe is is invalid or, or not robust. So you'll kind of see everything in proposals ranging from let's redefine the p-value and probability testing. Let's remove it or maybe a little bit less aggressively. Let's justify the statistical significance. And I, that, that personally resonates with me. Let's justify our decisions, our, our conclusions, and our significance testing. All right. So one final little uh, self-evaluation question here next. Which of the following represents the recent shift in p-value reporting and interpretation? A, p-value should be reported as uh, inequalities, as in aka p less than 0 0.05. Uh, Studies with the same p-value provide the same evidence against the null hypothesis. Wherever possible p-value should be one-sided, wherever possible. And then uh, finally, studies may have the same p-value, but different effect sizes. Give me a minute to think about that. Okay. The correct answer here is D. Studies may have the same p-value, but different effect sizes. And alternatively, uh, like we looked at before, they can have the same effect size and different p-values or confidence intervals and still not be contradicting one another. So given what we've talked about in the evidence, some of these other things are, are recommended against, actually, and, and D is actually more in line with our recent shifts in reporting. So hopefully, at minimum, we're moving 
sort of maybe into a greater degree of statistical thinking and thoughtfulness, openness, modesty when we think about our p-values and our significance testing. I love these these quotes here. Statistics means never having to say you're certain. The larger the sample size, the more confident uh, you can be that your sample mean is a good representation of the population mean. Thank you for joining us and listening to the great clinical content from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Are you a board-certified pharmacist looking for recertification credits? Be sure to check out ASHP's recertification offerings online at store.ashp.org. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.